Chapter Fourteen of the Lamplighter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Lamplighter by Maria Susanna Cummins. Chapter Fourteen. Yet where an equal poise of hope and fear does arbitrate the event, my nature is that I incline to hope rather than fear. Thomas. This was altogether a new experience to Willie, and one of the most trying he could have been called upon to bear. But he bore it and bore it bravely, kept all his worst struggles from his anxious mother and desponding grandfather, and resolved manfully to hope against hope. Gertie was now his chief comforter. He told her all his troubles, and young as she was, she was a wonderful consoler, always looking on the bright side, always prophesying better luck to morrow. She did much towards keeping up his hopes and strengthening his resolutions. Gertie was so quick, sagacious, and observing. That she knew more than most children of the various ways in which things are often brought about, and she sometimes made valuable suggestions to Willie, of which he gladly availed himself. Among others, she one day asked him if he had applied at the intelligence offices. He had never thought of it, wondered he had not, but would try the plan the very next day. He did so, and for a time was buoyed up with the hopes held out to him, but they proved fleeting, and he was now almost in despair. When his eye fell upon an advertisement in a newspaper, which seemed to afford still another chance, he showed the notice to Gertie. It was just the thing; he had only to apply. He was the very boy that man wanted—just fifteen, smart, capable, and trustworthy—and would like, when he had learned the business, to go into partnership. That was what was required, and Willie was the very person. She was sure. Gertie was so sanguine that Willie presented himself the next day at the place specified, with a more eager countenance than he had ever yet worn. The gentleman, a sharp-looking man with very keen eyes, talked with him some time, asked a great many questions, made the boy very uncomfortable by hinting his doubts about his capability and honesty, and finally wound up by declaring that. Under the most favorable circumstances, and with the very best recommendations, he could not think of engaging with any young man unless his friends were willing to take some interest in the concern, and invest a small amount on his account. This, of course, made the place out of the question for Willie, even if he had liked the man, which he did not, for he felt in his heart that he was a knave, or not many degrees removed from one. Until now, he had never thought of despairing. But when he went home after this last interview, it was with such a heavy heart that it seemed to him utterly impossible to meet his mother, and so he went directly to True's room. It was the night before Christmas. True had gone out, and Gertie was alone. There was a bright fire in the stove, and the room was dimly lighted by the last rays of the winter sunset, and by the glare of the coals seen through one of the open doors of the stove. Gertie was engaged in stirring up an Indian cake for tea, one of the few branches of the cooking department in which she had acquired some little skill. She was just coming from the pantry, with a scoop full of meal in her hand, when Willie entered at the opposite door. The manner in which he tossed his cap upon the settle and seating himself at the table, leaned his head upon both his hands, betrayed at once to Gertie the defeat the poor boy had met with in this last encounter with ill fate. It was so unlike Willie to come in without even speaking. It was such a strange thing to see his bright young head bowed down with care, and his elastic figure looking tired and old, that Gertie knew at once his brave heart had given way. 
She laid down the scoop, and walking softly and slowly up to him, touched his arm with her hand, and looked up anxiously into his face. Her sympathetic touch and look were more than he could bear. He laid his head on the table, and in a minute more Gertie heard great, heavy sobs, each one of which sank deep into her soul. She often cried herself, it seemed only natural. But Willie, the laughing, happy, light-hearted Willie, she had never seen him cry. She didn't know he could. She crept up on the rounds of his chair, and putting her arm round his neck, whispered, "'I shouldn't mind, Willie, if I didn't get the place. I don't believe it's a good place.' "'I don't believe it is either,' said Willie, lifting up his head. "'But what shall I do? I can't get any place, and I can't stay here doing nothing.' "'We like to have you at home,' said Gertie. "'It's pleasant enough to be at home. I was always glad enough to come when I lived at Mr. Bray's, and was earning something, and could feel as if anybody was glad to see me. "'Everybody is glad to see you now.' "'But not as they were then,' said Willie, rather impatiently. "'Mother always looks as if she expected to hear I'd got something to do. And Grandfather, I believe, never thought I should be good for much.' And now, just as I was beginning to earn something, and be a help to them, I've lost my chance. But that ain't your fault, Willie. You couldn't help Mr. Bray's dying. I shouldn't think Mr. Cooper would blame you for not having anything to do now. He don't blame me, but if you were in my place, you'd feel just as I do. To see him sit in his armchair, evenings, and groan and look up at me, as much as to say, It's you I'm groaning about. He thinks this is a dreadful world, and that he's never seen any good luck in it himself. So I suppose he thinks I never shall. I think you will, said Gertie. I think you'll be rich sometime, and then won't he be astonished. Oh, Gertie, you're a nice child, and think I can do anything. If ever I am rich, I promise to go shares with you. But, added he despondently, taint so easy. I used to think I could make money when I grew up, but it's a pretty slow business. Here he was on the point of leaning down upon the table again, and giving himself up to melancholy. But Gertie caught hold of his hands. Come, said she, Willie, don't think any more about it. People have troubles always, but they get over em. Perhaps next week you'll be in a better shop than Mr. Bray's, and we shall be as happy as ever. Do you know, said she, by way of changing the subject, a species of tact which children understand as well as grown people. It's just two years to-night since I came here. "'Is it?' said Willie. "'Did Uncle True bring you home with him the night before Christmas?' "'Yes.' "'Why, that was Santa Claus carrying you to good things "'instead of bringing good things to you, wasn't it?' "'Gertie did not know anything about Santa Claus, "'that special friend of children. "'And Willie, who had only lately read about him in some book, "'undertook to tell her what he knew of the veteran toy dealer. "'Finding the interest of the subject had engaged his thoughts "'in spite of himself, Gertie returned to her cooking.' "'listening attentively, however, to his story, "'while she stirred up the corn-cake. "'When he had finished, "'she was just putting her cake in the oven, "'and as she sat on her knee by the stove, "'swinging the handle of the oven-door in her hand, "'her eyes twinkled with such a merry look "'that Willie exclaimed, "'What are you thinking of, Gertie, "'that makes you look so sly?' "'I was thinking that perhaps Santa Claus "'would come for you to-night. "'If he comes for folks that need something, "'I expect he'll come for you.' "'and carry you to some place where you'll have a chance to grow rich.' "'Very likely,' said Willie. "'He'll clap me into his bag and trudge off with me as a present to somebody. "'Some old croesus that will give me a fortune for the asking. 
I do hope he will, for if I don't get something to do before New Year, I shall give up in despair. True came in now, and interrupted the children's conversation by the display of a fine turkey, a Christmas present from Mr. Graham. He had also a book for Gertie, a gift from Emily. "'Isn't that queer?' exclaimed Gertie. "'Willie was just saying you were my Santa Claus, Uncle True, and I do believe you are.' As she spoke, she opened the book, and in the frontispiece was a portrait of that individual. "'It looks like him, Willie. I declare it does,' shouted she. "'A fur cap, a pipe, and such a pleasant face. "'Oh, Uncle True, if you only had a sack full of toys over your shoulder, "'instead of your lantern and that great turkey, "'you would be a complete Santa Claus.' "'Haven't you got anything for Willie, Uncle True?' "'Yes, I've got a little something, but I'm afeard he won't think much on it. "'It's only a bit of a note.' "'A note for me?' inquired Willie. "'Who can it be from?' "'Can't say,' said True, fumbling in his great pockets. "'Only just round the corner I met a man who stopped me to inquire where Miss Sullivan lived. "'I told him she lived just here, and I'd show him the house.' When he saw I belonged here, too, he gave me this little scrap of paper, and asked me to hand it over, as it was directed to Master William Sullivan. I suppose that's you, ain't it? He now handed Willie the slip of paper, and the boy, taking True's lantern in his hand, and holding the note up to the light, read aloud, R. H. Clinton would like to see William Sullivan on Thursday morning, between ten and eleven o'clock, at number eighteen, blank wharf. Willie looked up in amazement. "'What does it mean?' said he. "'I don't know any such person.' "'I know who he is,' said True. "'Why, it's he as lives in the great stone house in Blank Street. "'He's a rich man, and that's the number of his store. "'His counting-room, rather, on Blank Wharf.' "'What? Father to those pretty children we used to see in the window?' "'The very same.' "'What can he want of me?' "'Very like he wants your services,' suggested True.' "'Then it's a place,' cried Gertie, "'a real good one, and Santa Claus came and brought it. "'I said he would. "'Oh, Willie, I'm so glad.' "'Willie did not know whether to be glad or not. "'It was such a strange message, "'coming, too, from an utter stranger. "'He could not but hope, as Gertie and True did, "'that it might prove the dawning of some good fortune. "'But he had reasons, of which they were not aware, "'for believing that no offer from this quarter "'could be available to him.' and therefore made them both promise to give no hint of the matter to his mother or Mr. Cooper. On Thursday, which was the next day but one, being the day after Christmas, Willie presented himself at the appointed time and place. Mr. Clinton, a gentlemanly man, with a friendly countenance, received him very kindly, asked him but few questions, and did not even mention such a thing as a recommendation from his former employer but telling him that he was in want of a young man to fill the place of junior clerk in his counting-room, offered him the situation. Willie hesitated, for though the offer was most encouraging to his future prospects, Mr. Clinton made no mention of any salary, and that was a thing the youth could not dispense with. Seeing that he was undecided, Mr. Clinton said, "'Perhaps you do not like my proposal, or have already made some other engagement.' "'No, indeed,' answered Willie, quickly. "'You are very kind to feel so much confidence in a stranger "'as to be willing to receive me, "'and your offer is a most unexpected and welcome one. "'But I have been in a retail store "'where I obtained regular earnings, "'which were very important to my mother and grandfather. "'I had far rather be in a counting-room like yours, sir, "'and I think I might learn to be of use. 
but I know there are numbers of boys, sons of rich men, who would be glad to be employed by you, and would ask no compensation for their services, so that I could not expect any salary, at least for some years. I should indeed be well repaid at the end of that time, by the knowledge I might gain of mercantile affairs. But unfortunately, sir, I can no more afford it than I could afford to go to college. The gentleman smiled. How did you know so much of these matters, my young friend? I have heard, sir, from boys who were at school with me, and are now clerks in mercantile houses, that they received no pay. And I always considered it a perfectly fair arrangement. But it was the reason why I felt bound to content myself with a position I held in an apothecary shop, which, though it was not suited to my taste, enabled me to support myself, and to relieve my mother, who was a widow, and my grandfather, who was old and poor. Your grandfather is— Mr. Cooper, sexton of Mr. Arnold's church. Aha! said Mr. Clinton. I know him. What you say, William, added he, after a moment's pause, is perfectly true. We are not in the habit of paying any salary to our young clerks, and are overrun with applications at that rate. But I have heard good accounts of you, my boy. I shan't tell you where I had my information, though I see you look very curious. And, moreover, I like your countenance, and believe you will serve me faithfully. So if you will tell me what you received from Mr. Bray, I will pay you the same next year, and after that increase your salary if I find you deserve it. And if you please, you shall commence with me the first of January. Willie thanked Mr. Clinton in the fewest possible words, and hastened away. The senior clerk, who as he leaned over his accounts, listened to the conversation, thought the boy did not express much gratitude, considering the unusual generosity of the merchant's offer. But the merchant himself, who was watching the boy's countenance, while despondency gave place to surprise, and surprise again was superseded by hope, joy, and a most sincere thankfulness, saw there a gratitude too deep to express itself in words, and remembered the time when he too, the only son of his mother, and she a widow, had come alone to the city, sought long for employment, and finding it at last, had sat down to write and tell her how he hoped soon to earn enough for himself and her. The grass had been growing on that parent's grave, far back in the country, more than twenty years, and the merchant's face was furrowed with the lines of care. But as he returned slowly to his desk, and unconsciously traced on a blank sheet of paper, and with a dry pen, the words, Dear Mother, she for the time became a living image, he a boy again, and those invisible words were the commencement of the very letter that carried her the news of his good fortune. No. The boy was not ungrateful, or the merchant would not thus have been reminded of the time when his own heart had been so deeply stirred. And the spirits of those mothers, who have wept, prayed, and thanked God over similar communications from much-loved sons, may know how to rejoice and sympathize with good little Mrs. Sullivan when she heard from Willie the joyful tidings. Mr. Cooper and Gertie also have their prototypes in many an old man, whose dim and world-worn eye lights up occasionally with the hope that, disappointed as he has been himself, he cannot help cherishing for his grandson, and in many a proud little sister, who now sees her noble brother appreciated by others, as he has always been by her. Nor on such an occasion is the band of rejoicing ones complete, without some such hearty friend as true to come in unexpectedly, tap the boy on the shoulder, and exclaim, Ah, Master Willie, they needn't have worried about you, need they? I've told your grandfather, more than once, that I was of the opinion t'would all come out right at last. 
The great mystery of the whole matter was Mr. Clinton's ever having heard of Willie at all. Mrs. Sullivan thought over all her small circle of acquaintances, and suggested a great many impossible ways. But as, with much conjecturing, they came no nearer to the truth, they finally concluded to do as Gertie did, set it all down to the agency of Santa Claus. End of chapter 14